You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. The famine was coming to an end. 300 years before, God had prophesied through the prophet Amos, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Today we're going to visit God's holy city of Jerusalem, and we are going to see, we're going to hear God lifting the famine, that the Holy Spirit would come among the people in Jerusalem and stir their hearts, revive their hearts with a holy hunger for the word of God. And by his grace, he would begin to satisfy that hunger in the lives of his people in Jerusalem. For you kids that are here with us today in the worship service, I'd like you to listen up. I'd like you to use your ears to listen, because as we go through this part of the book of Nehemiah, you're going to hear some things. You're going to hear people wanting to hear the Word of God, the Bible. You're going to hear the Bible being read. You're going to hear people crying. And you're going to hear people rejoicing in God's grace. And my prayer today is that as we visit Jerusalem in that spring of 445 B.C., that we're going to see the Spirit impacting us here at CCC in 2018. So join me, if you will, in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8. And if any of you are panicking about how we're going to go through two chapters today, (laughs) I'm with you. Um, (laughs) What we're going to do is we're going to just kind of get the highlights of chapter 7 and spend most of our time focusing on chapter 8. Chapter 7 is kind of pivotal in the book of Nehemiah. The first six chapters focus on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 talk about God rebuilding the people of Jerusalem. And chapter 7, right in between, is the pivot. What are some of the brief highlights of Nehemiah chapter 7? I I will give it to you this way for you note-takers. God's city needed protection, and God's city needed people. First, God's city needed protection. The first three verses of Nehemiah 7. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And they said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city walls were built, but now there needed to be protectors, there needed to be gatekeepers. And Nehemiah appointed leaders that were faithful and God-fearing. Now, I wish I had more time to talk about the fear of God. Uh, Years ago, I remember doing a short series on the fear of God. That's a phrase that has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? Years ago, people used to use a God-fearing man, a God-fearing woman as, as a compliment, as a way of honoring someone, that this person honored God, God fearing But now that sounds like such an archaic term, doesn't it? But when Nehemiah looked for men he could put in charge and leadership, 
he looked for men of character, of faithfulness. And one of the characteristics he looked for was their attitude, their, their response to God. He looked for men who feared God in a holy way. He looked for God-fearing men. By the way, just a good lesson for all of us in any era is that when we're looking for leaders, let us look for people of character, proven character. When I think about these first three verses of Nehemiah, I'm reminded that the people of God needed protection back then, and the people of God need protection too. And as one of your pastors, I often think about that heavy responsibility I and my fellow pastors carry of protecting the church. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said they were to guard, they were to take care of the church of God. And when he wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 1, he said, look for men, Titus, who can handle the word of God, who can handle the word of God in a positive way to teach people, but also know how to rebuke people who are veering from the word of God. But they had to have the courage and the strength to stand up against people who would try to influence the church away from the word of God. So pastors serve as gatekeepers even in our day in our church. And this isn't interesting how in Nehemiah at 7 here it says that some of these guards were to stand in front of their own homes. That's an incentive, protecting your own family. And no matter what era we live in, let me challenge my fellow men, husbands, dads, grandfathers, that we have a responsibility to guard our own families. It's easy for us men in our culture to just kind of wimp out, to be so distracted by work and hobbies and whatever that we're not being intentional in guarding our families. And I want to challenge us, myself and my fellow men, to be gatekeepers of our own homes, our marriages, our kids. But God's people, the city of God needed people too. Let's read verses 4 through 7. The city of God not only needed protection, the city of God needed people. Verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first and found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilsham, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baanah. The walls have been built. And I think sometimes as we read the book of Nehemiah, especially the first six chapters, we can get so fixated on getting that project done that we can lose sight of the fact of why it was to be done. Building the walls of Jerusalem was not an end in and of itself. Building the walls was a means to an end. The goal was not the walls. The goal was the people of God. That the people of God needed protection. Yes, they needed those walls. They needed identity that this is who we are. We are the people of God, the Old Testament people of God. And they needed um, also a sense of community. This is where we belong. This is where God's people are. And yet the reality was that at this time, very few people lived within those restored walls. Now, it's hard for us to picture it. There's obviously no photographs that survive from that era. But Nehemiah tells us that the, wall, the, excuse me, the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Now, some people were living in the walls. Maybe they were living in tents. 
Or maybe there were a few houses that had escaped destruction in Nebuchadnezzar's day, but um, there were very few people. About 50,000 people were now back from exile, and yet apparently only a very, very small percentage of those people had taken up residence within the actual city of Jerusalem. And this was the place of God. This was the city of God. It should be populated. So who's going to live there? Who's going to live in the city of Jerusalem? Can just anybody live there? Can, can the neighbors down the road just say, I'll live there? Can the Ammonites come? The Moabites come? The Arabs come? Can all these people just come and take up their residence in the city of Jerusalem? Now we have to think in Old Testament ways. That the Israelites, the Jews, were to be a distinct people, the people of God. And it was they who were allowed to live in the city of God. That the city was to be a holy city, a distinct city, a city set apart for God himself. And so who was qualified to live within the city? Well, Nehemiah says we need to find out people's genealogy. And he found this 90-year-old document of a list of the people who had come back under Zerubbabel. And he read through the names of those people. And if you were a descendant of one of those people, then you would be qualified. There may be some other more recent returnees who also qualified. But we read names like this. And by the way, we're not going to read through all of chapter 7 today. Can I say here, thank you. (laughs) I would butcher most of the names, I'm sure. But we look at the chapter 7, how long it is with all those names, and we might think, oh, that's boring. But if you were to stand in the sandals of the people in Jerusalem in that day... And Nehemiah, or whoever, was going to read out loud the list of genealogies, you would probably be leaning forward. You're saying, do I, do I hear my dad's name? Do I hear my granddad's name? Because if you would hear your father's name or your grandfather's name or maybe even your great-grandfather's name, there'd be a sigh of relief. Uh, my, my great-grandfather's name's in there, and I'm his descendant, so I'm qualified. I, I can be one of the people that come and lives within the city of God, Jerusalem. And you know what? Even though we're in a different era, a different era in God's plan of redemption, we can be thankful that God knows our names. If we're believers, that our names are written down, our names are written in the book of life. And because our names, by God's grace, are written in the book of life, we can one day live in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to pick up this part of the story, this list of names in chapter 7, If you look ahead to chapter 11, it kind of picks up on that theme. So I think it's three weeks from today. We're going to get to chapter 11. So I'm going to leave the rest of this story of chapter 7 till we get to chapter 11 in a few weeks and spend our time today particularly focused on chapter 8. So if you want to turn ahead in your Bibles to chapter 8, we're going to see in this chapter revival among the people of Jerusalem, a revival among the people that began with hearing the word of God. Let me read to you the first eight verses of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masai. And on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Machajiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pali, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Friends, the people of God, the people of Jerusalem initiated this amazing scenario. The walls were done. The people caught their breaths, maybe finally took a bath, now, as they looked at those walls that seemingly were impossible to rebuild, for years those walls had lain in destruction, and now the walls have been rebuilt in 52 days despite opposition from without and despite turmoil from within. And the people realized the only way this could happen was by the hand of God. God has clearly done an amazing thing. That what is seemingly impossible, the rebuilding of those walls, is now done. I think what's going on here is the people were so stirred by seeing the hand of God that now they wanted to know the God behind that hand. Tell us about God. <coughs> and so thousands of people gathered at the water gate. Now, if we have a map of the city here, the water gate, you can see it here on the western wall, excuse me, the eastern wall of Jerusalem. That would have been probably one of the busiest gates of the city. Now, why would I know that? Well, think about it. There was no running water back then, was there? And we're so used to running water in our homes, but there was no running water in the homes of Jerusalem, inside or outside the walls. And so if anybody wanted to get water, they had to go here to get water. So every day, someone from the family, someone from the family had to go fetch the water. And it was in this area that thousands, thousands, some estimate up to 50,000 people, nearly everyone, nearly everyone gathered in this this square, this open area in front of the, the water gate there. And as they were there, we realized that it wasn't just a men's gathering. This gathering was men, women, and children. And I'm glad today that you children are here in the auditorium, and I want to remind you that you're not the first generation of kids that's had the privilege to hear the Word of God. That these kids that were gathered there on that day were standing there right beside their mom and dad, Maybe the grandma and the grandpa, uncles and aunts, hearing the word of God. Years later, Paul would write to his protege, Timothy, and he said, From childhood, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And you kids that are growing up in Christian homes, you kids that are growing up in the context of this local church, have the privilege, the privilege of hearing the word of God. And it's the Word of God that shows us our need for Christ. It's the Word of God that shows us Christ. It's the Word of God that shows us how to be right through Christ. 
You're able to make us wise unto salvation. This crowd of thousands gathered in that courtyard were united around a common hunger for the word of God. They were hungry. I was telling Gladine at breakfast this morning how excited I am to preach this sermon. Then I started laughing. I said, I probably say that every time I preach, don't I? <laughs> you know, I think one reason why I always enjoy preaching, especially here at CCC, is when I look out, I see faces of people I love. And they're faces of people who want to know the Word of God. I, I see your, your Bibles on your laps or your phones with the app on your laps. I see you looking at me and I know... These people, my spiritual family, are hungry for the Word of God. And I'll tell you what, friends, I and the others on the preaching team revel in that kindness to our church that He's given so many of you a hunger for the Word of God. And here are the thousands of people gathered in front of the Watergate. I don't know that this is the way it happened, but I kind of wonder. It says that the people asked Ezra to bring the book, bring the book of the law. And in my imagination, I wonder if, is the crowd gathered there and they were getting settled? Uh, if somebody said, bring the book. And then some other people joined them and said, bring the book. And pretty soon, maybe hundreds, bring the book. And then maybe thousands saying, bring the book. Amen. <laughs> and so we see Ezra. Ezra brings the book. He brings the book of the law of God, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, probably selecting passages to read. And as we see Ezra stepping up onto that platform, we realize, you know what? That's the first time we've seen his name in the book of Nehemiah. Now, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah originally one book in the Old Testament of the Jews. We've separated them, Ezra and Nehemiah. But in, it's true that in Nehemiah's part, Nehemiah's memoirs, it's the first time we read the name of Ezra. And let's not forget, though, let's not forget that Nehemiah had been faithfully teaching the Word of God for 14 years. He himself had come from Persia 14 years previously and had faithfully taught the people. And yet now there was something unusual happening. Now there was a movement of the Spirit of God among the people that Nehemiah maybe had never seen in his 14 years back in Jerusalem. There was a platform built so that Nehemiah could read the Word of God. It was a pretty big platform because we know besides Nehemiah, there were 13 other men standing with him. And so Nehemiah began reading from the scrolls. Did you notice what happened as Nehemiah began reading from the scroll? The people stood. Now, it's not required in the Bible that we stand when the Bible is read, but these people did. Now, they wouldn't have had chairs, so it was either sit on the ground or stand. But they stood as Nehemiah opened the book. And they stood for six hours. For six hours. From about the time the sun came up till midday, they stood and listened to the word of God. They were hungry. And it says, it says right here in Nehemiah 8 that they were attentive. They, they weren't looking around. They weren't daydreaming. They weren't pulling out their phone and checking their emails or whatever. <laughs> they, they were watching Ezra. They were listening to Ezra. They were listening to the book. They were listening to the word of God being read. They were seeking to understand it. They were hungry for the word of God. Now, I would have to guess that some of these people, some of them, had never heard the word of God before. 
Now remember, this is centuries before the printing press. There were no printed Bibles. You wouldn't have a copy of the Bible in your home. If you wanted to know the Word of God, you would have to hear it read publicly. And some of these people, not all of them, but some of them probably had never had that privilege before of hearing the Word of God. But today, there was something special happening. They were hearing the Word of God. Have you ever hungered for the Word of God? I think sometimes we're so used to our Bibles, we're so used to hearing it preached, we're so used to hearing it taught, that we kind of get used to it. And yet we should have a hunger, whether we read the Bible every day or we go through a dry spell, a famine where we don't hear it, we should always have a hunger for the Word of God. As I was going over my notes, I had this recollection come some years back, we had some guests, first time guests here at CCC, and I can remember this day so distinctly because I was teaching one of our life education classes and and uh, the, the wife, the lady that was visiting with her husband, was seated next to Gladine. She didn't know Gladine. She didn't know who Gladine was. But she was seated next to my wife, and I was teaching the class. And Gladine told me later that as I finished teaching that class, this lady leaned over to her and says, oh, he taught from the Bible. And Gladine was a bit taken, taken aback by that, like, what else are we going to study, you <laughs> know? But see, what happened was that lady and her husband had come from a church where the Bible had been neglected for years. And as a true believer, as a child of God, she had a hunger. She had a hunger for the Word of God. And now she felt her soul being fed from God's Word, the Bible. The people heard the word of God that day, and there was an automatic and uh, an immediate response, wasn't there? Did you notice how the people responded when they heard the word of God? That there was a vocal response, wasn't there? When the word of God is being read, you could hear out in the crowd people saying, Amen! Amen! And there was a, there was a physical response. Some of the people began to raise their hands. Now, I realize some of you are very comfortable with that, and some of you are not. And uh, we're not, we don't require that in our church, but I want to show you in the Bible that it is often a response to hearing the Word of God. It tends to be a physical expression of dependence, like we're hanging on God, and it can be a physical expression of our hunger for God. We want Him to come. And here on that day, as Ezra was reading the book of the law to thousands of people, there was a vocal response, there was a physical response, and there was a worship response. As people heard the word of God, some began to bow down with their faces toward the ground. They were worshiping God as they heard his word. And you know, so often we, in our modern thinking, separate the preaching from worship. And, and it's so easy to do that. We say, well, there's the worship part of our service, and then there's the preaching part of our service. My friends, it's all worship. When we're here together as a people of God, it's all worship, whether we're singing or we're reading or we're hearing the Word of God and responding to it. It's all worship. It's all devotion to the God who has saved us. And these people worshiped God when they heard the Word of God. Apparently, over these six hours or so that Ezra was reading the book of the law, he would pause now and then. And there were Levites, uh, helpers to the priests, who would go among the crowd and explain what they just heard. And I don't know exactly how that worked, but there were 13 of them, and, 
and maybe they'd get people around, and maybe this guy would go over to this part of the courtyard, and, and that guy would go over to that part of the courtyard, and it's okay, everybody in this group over here, can you hear me? Okay, what Ezra just read, what that means is this. What that difference that makes is this. And he would begin to explain the Word of God and make it clear. Now, some people wonder if there might have been a language issue there. These people had come here from Persia. They would have spoken Aramaic. But quite frankly, probably most of them understood Hebrew too. Ezra read from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but I would guess that most of the people understood Hebrew. So I think what's going on here is they're explaining it. And friends, isn't that what we do today? I mean, here we are, here we are 24, 2,500 years later, and, and we still do that. We read the Word of God, and then we seek to explain it. That's what we do from this pulpit. That's what we do in our life education classes. That's what we do in our children's church. That's what we do in our life groups. We try to explain and apply the Word of God. This is a delight to us, isn't it? So as the word of God was read and explained, what happened to the people? Children, do you know what happened next? Let's find out. I'm just going to read the end of verse 9. The end of verse 9 says, All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They wept. Why were they crying? Why were the people crying? Because as they heard Ezra reading the Bible, and as they heard the Levites explaining the Bible, they realized, as they heard the Bible read and explained, we're sinners. I just heard God says to do this, and I'm not doing that. I heard Ezra read that part about don't do that, and that's what I've done. I'm not doing what he said to do, and I'm doing what he said not to do. And there was a conviction of sin. Paul would later write to the Romans, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And the author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's true, isn't it, my Christian friends? The word of God can pierce us, it convict us. And the people crowded in that courtyard wept. The spirit of God was exposing their sin. And they grieved loudly, they grieved publicly, they grieved as a people. It's hard to imagine what that looked like. Not just a fussy child here and there weeping, but old men and old women, and young men and young women, and middle-aged people and teenagers and children who had heard the word of God weeping over their sin. But what did Nehemiah Ezra and the Levites say. What did they say to these thousands of people who were weeping, having heard the word of God? Look at the beginning of verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why would they tell the people to stop weeping? Isn't that a good thing to be convicted of your sin, to be broken over your sin? Isn't that a good thing? Yes, it is. And yet, the leader said, stop crying, folks. Now, one reason was because of the day it was. Did you notice in verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, the first day of the seventh month. 
And you might think, okay, first day of the seventh month. Well, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 24, it says in Leviticus 23, 24, God commanded through Moses that the first day of the seventh month was to be set aside as a feast, as a feast in which people were to rejoice, the Feast of Trumpets. This was that day. That platform was built intentionally to celebrate this day. So there was a God-given requirement to rejoice, but rejoice why? To rejoice in God's redemption of his people. That as the people wept over their sin, they needed to hear the news that God is also a forgiver of sins, that he cleanses us. God had prophesied through Jeremiah. Before the people went into exile, God prophesied through Jeremiah, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. And David had written that song years before. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright of heart. That not only is there brokenness over our sin, but there's joy in his forgiveness. And so the weeping turned into celebration. A celebration having heard the word of God. Let's read verses 10, 11, and 12. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That's why, because. Here in this section, verse 10, it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Did you know that was in Nehemiah 8? I would guess that that's probably the most well-known phrase from the book of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And yet, my guess, I don't want to be cynical, but my guess would be that most people have no idea that comes out of Nehemiah chapter 8. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What's that mean? What, what, does, what does it mean, the joy of the Lord? And why would the joy of the Lord be our strength? You can find that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, on mugs and T-shirts and purses and pillowcases and plaques. And usually the phrase, the phrase is accompanied by cute little pictures of kittens and rainbows and birds and flowers and sunsets. Now, don't go home and throw it all away. <laughs> but I do want you to think about it. What does that mean? The joy of the Lord is your strength. My hunch is, my hunch is, and that's all it is. My hunch is that most people think of that sentimentally. Well, you know, if I, if I just discipline myself, if I just focus more on how good God's been to me, that'll make me a happier person. And if I'm a happier person, I'll be more resilient when I face hardships. You know what? That, there's some truth to that. But I think what we read in Nehemiah 8, 10 is much more substantive than that. has a whole lot more meat to it than just saying, well, I need to be a happier person. Happy people handle difficulties better than people that aren't happy. 
What does it mean, the joy of the Lord? Now, let's, let's think about this. The joy of the Lord. The Lord's joy. The joy the Lord has. It's the joy the Lord has. Well, what kind of joy does the Lord have? He has joy in redeeming his people. He has joy in taking ill-deserving sinners and making them his sons and daughters. He enjoys gathering a people to himself, of restoring that which was lost. Jesus would later say to his men the night before the cross that he had joy and he was giving it to them. So it's his joy that he gives to us. That joy that we should have is not circumstantial. It's not saying, well, I just need to focus on the fact that I'm healthy and I should be happy about being healthy, and if I'm just happy about being healthy, then I'll be more resilient when the hard times come. I should be happy that I have a nice home. We should be happy for all those things, but friends, those things pass away. So if you're saying your happiness is based on circumstances, what if God takes away your health or your nice home or your job or your loved one? You no longer have the joy of the Lord. The joy that the Lord has is the joy in his people, that he's redeemed the people out of Egypt. Now he's redeemed them in a second exodus from Persia. He's restoring them to his city, his holy city of Jerusalem, and he finds delight in that. He finds great joy in the redemption of his people, the restoration of his people. And here we are as New Covenant people, as New Testament people, and we know the joy of redemption through Jesus Christ very clearly. Jesus said, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that, my friends, is the never-ending reality of God's grace. That never changes. God could take away everything on this earth. And yet, if your name is written in heaven, <laughs> Jesus says rejoice in that. I found great help in reading this uh, chapter in a book written by Nancy Guthrie. Actually, I enjoyed it so much, I asked to make a slide of it. Let's read it. I'll read it out loud. You follow along, though. Nancy Guthrie wrote this about the joy of the Lord. Here is joy that gives us strength, the joy that the Lord takes in writing our names in his book as those who will live securely in his city, the new Jerusalem, with him forever. Knowing that our names are written in heaven strengthens us for living life on this earth we can face disappointment and disaster, and ultimately we can face death, strengthened in the knowledge that our lives cannot be ruined. They cannot be snuffed out. Our names will not be, cannot be blotted out from God's book. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord. The joy He has in redeeming us becomes our joy as we see He's redeemed us. He's made us His people. He has planned for us an eternity in, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and earth. And He will come and live with us and be our God and we'll be His people forever and ever and ever. That brings strength. I thought about that old hymn that's recently been resurrected, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I think it's the second stanza goes like this. It says, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. 
He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. That, my friends, is the joy of the Lord. And that brings security. That brings safety. That brings strength. Your happiness, my happiness, is not based on the circumstances around us in this fallen world, as good as they may be, as kind gifts from God's gracious hand as they may be. That is not the ultimate source of our happiness, our strength, our joy. Our joy is found in Him and in His redemption of us. I think of it very simply this way. Fellow Christian, is God smiling at you or frowning at you? You can answer that if you care to. Is he smiling at you or frowning at you? Again, please. He's smiling. Why would he be smiling at you? Why would he be smiling at you? Because of Jesus Christ. We forget that. We lose sight of that. And we think, I need to shape up. And we live sometimes with this this dread over us that God's frowning at us. And we need to remember the gospel. The gospel is that he looks at us and he smiles, not because of us, but because of his son, Jesus Christ. He sees Christ when he looks at us. And he smiles because we are in Christ. We are in him. And because we're in him, our heavenly father smiles. And friends, there is now, now no condemnation over those who are in Christ. You don't need to fear condemnation. You don't need to fear God's judgment, fellow Christian. That you remember that He's redeemed me, not because I deserved redemption, but because of His sovereign grace. He redeemed me through the blood of His Son, Jesus. And therefore, He smiles at me. He smiles at me every day. All because of Christ. As I remember that, then he's written my name in heaven. He's written my name in the book of life as a citizen, not of the old Jerusalem, but as a citizen of the new Jerusalem. That's my security. That's my safety. That's my strength. Knowing that, believing that, enables me, strengthens me to face the trials that come as I journey through this fallen world. As I face the difficulties, the disappointments, the disasters, even death itself. In this era between the gardens, my eyes are fixed. My eyes are fixed on my Savior. And my eyes are fixed on Him. And I remember whose I am, that I am in Him. And because of Him, my name is written as a citizen of the New Jerusalem. My name is written in the book of life. And nothing that happens this side of heaven can destroy that. That's, that's my security. That's my joy. And the people of God there in Jerusalem that day also responded with grace-fueled obedience. Beginning at verse 13, it says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the peoples and the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. 
And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns of Jerusalem. Go out in the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees, and make booths, as is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. And it goes on there and explains that. For sake of time, let me say this. As the people heard the word of God, they were hungry for it. That's a movement of the Spirit. They were hungry for the word of God. Ezra read it. The Levites explained it. The people responded by weeping over their sins. They're reminded of God's grace. They rejoiced. But now they're obeying. They were still hungry. And so the heads of household, the dads, the granddads, they, they said, teach us more. Teach us more of the Bible. And they came representing their families, this men's Bible study. And they said, tell us more. And Ezra and the Levites and others would train these men and these heads of household learned that God's word says that we're to celebrate this, this feast of the booths, this feast of the tabernacles. And they obeyed. They went out and did it for the first time in years. They built these booths as reminders of God's redemption of their forefathers out of Egypt. That our forefathers were pilgrims. They were sojourners out in the wilderness. They had to live in these hot tents and huts. And, and so shall we as a reminder of God's grace, his redemption of our ancestors. And they rejoiced. In that day, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 31, it says, Moses commanded them, this is going back to Moses, at the end of every seven years, on the time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place he will choose, that's what we're seeing in Nehemiah 8, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones. And the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law. And the children who have not yet known it may hear and learn the fear of the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you're going over to the Jordan to possess. And we sing the fulfillment of that here in Nehemiah 8 as the people gathered, the little ones too, and they heard the word of God and they obeyed. Friends, long passage What's the takeaway? There are many. But let me encourage us with the essence of the value of the Word of God and how it's used by the Spirit in our lives to point us to the Lord, to point us to Christ. As a church family, let us commit. I'm so glad the kids are here today. And being one of the older ones in our church, I look at my grandkids and their peers, and I realize in God's gracious providence, some of you kids will be in this church if the Lord tarries. Some of you kids will be in this church 50 years from now or 60 years from now. I'll be long in heaven. And you're, you're going to be enjoying this church 50 or 60 years from now. And I want to challenge those of you that are a generation behind me or two generations behind me to see the value of the Word of God, that He's given us the Word of God so that we would know Christ and how to be right with God through Christ. Sadly, I think many churches in our day are contributing to this famine-like spirit in our culture. And I don't want to be overly critical, but I fear that in many churches, what sermons are, our um, preachers that have this idea of something they want to say to the congregation, so they come up with this idea and they look for a Bible verse or two to sprinkle on it, and they call that a sermon. Or as we see here in Nehemiah, that sermons should arise from the book. Sermons should arise from the book. It's the Word of God being explained clearly, applied, 
clearer. Walt Kaiser said some years back, men and women cannot live by ideas alone, no matter how eloquently they may be stated or argued, but solely, listen to Dr. Kaiser, he says, but solely by patient reading and explanation of all of Scripture, line after line, paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter, and book after book. Where are the interpreters to be found and where are their teachers? How long will it be before the people of God rise up in holy horror and say, enough, we'll no longer tolerate the few scraps that we receive as an excuse for evangelical teaching and preaching. Most of my seminary professors are long ago in heaven. A few of them are still with us. And I saw one of them not too long ago, Dr. Homer Kent. He lives at Grace Village. He's in his 90s. And every time I see Dr. Kent, he's one of the predecessors of our own Matt Harmon. He was a New Testament prof at Grace Seminary down the street. Every time I see Dr. Kent, I thank him. I say, Dr. Kent, thank you. Thank you for teaching me how to study the Word of God and explain it to the people of God. We were having one of those conversations, and Dr. Kent said to me, Larry, I think that the preaching of God's Word is being neglected in too many churches. I hope that God's true people will eventually get so hungry that they begin telling the seminaries, send us men who can preach the Word of God. Thank you, Matt, and others who are doing that. Send us men who can teach the Word. And I just want to say to this flock, may the Spirit of God never let us lose our hunger for the Word of God. And in the coming years and generations, to cry out, give us pastors, give us preachers who preach the Word of God. Because it is in the Word of God we see Christ. It is in the Word of God that we see the redemption we have in Him. And friends, this is not true only for us as a church body, but it's true for us as individuals. Are you hungry for the Word of God as an individual Christian? And some of you would have to say right now, honestly, I'm not. And we all go through times like that. I've been through times like that where I say, where's my appetite gone? And when we realize I've lost my appetite for the Word of God, you know what we should do? We cry out. We say, Spirit of God, Spirit of God, come, come and stir my heart. Revive me. Give me a fresh hunger for the Word of God. And then to make time, it's not going to just happen. No one drifts toward holiness. You, you make time. You make time for the Word of God. And I don't know what you do when you have the Bible on your lap, but I like to open my Bible in the mornings and pray a short prayer. And my prayer usually goes something like this. Lord, as I read your Word today, show me Christ. Show me Christ. Whether I'm reading the Gospel of John or the book of Nehemiah, show me Christ. And you read and you enjoy, you feast, you meditate. You ask the Spirit to come and to change you. David said in one of his songs that the Word of God is more to be desired than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The Word of God is precious and sweet, is it not? Because of who appoints us to appoints us to Christ.